So welcome to this, the latest in our series of podcasts for The Lighthouse at Falmouth Journalism, when we are chatting with various people involved with journalism around the world. And today, um, I've come away from Falmouth, away from Cornwall, in fact, uh, quite a long way away. We're sitting in the garden of um, a house in Johannesburg, South Africa, with Andrew Harding. Hello. Hello. Um, Andrew is... Well, actually, do you want to introduce yourself? Who are you? Uh, I am the BBC's Africa correspondent. I've been here in Joburg for 11 years now, um, mostly doing hard news for BBC, uh, taking a bit of time off here and there to write some books um, and do longer form stuff. And before that, uh, various other parts of the world, uh, Nairobi, Asia, Moscow. Um, And before we get into sort of how you got into journalism and what your thoughts are about what makes for a good news story... um, Today, I um, just want to have a look at how you're actually covering one particular story because we're sitting here in this lovely garden in Johannesburg, slightly cloudy sky, um, and you're reporting on something thousands of miles away in, in Mogadishu. How are you actually doing that? How are you telling that story? It's one of those slightly frustrating, tricky ones where you're, you're not just at arm's length. You're far removed from a, an awful incident, a bomb blast, probably 60, 70, 80, maybe more dead um, and I've been asked because I'm on duty, it's, it's a holiday time, but I'm the, the guy on duty. And because although we have people in Mogadishu who can file, who can do reports, some of them, for instance, might have a thick Somali accident, accent, which might not be so easily understandable for, for a British Radio 4 audience, which, of course, is kind of a key target of my work, is to report back to the UK. So I am doing radio and TV for a British audience today, trying to use my knowledge of Somalia to kind of explain what happened. Um, And I've spent a lot of time there, so I know it. So people, you know, tend to come to me when there's an incident or a story about Somalia anyway, because they know that it's something I know about um, in some depth. And so I'm, yeah, I'm trying to basically relying on the wires, so on on uh, Reuters, AP, AFP, those kind of organisations who have people there and file stuff quickly. Um, So I'm reading that. People in London are emailing me that. I'm checking on Twitter. I follow a lot of Somalis um, so I can get fresh information, video. I look at the video and then when I'm writing, I rely on what I've seen on those Twitter feeds and so on, as well as, you know, what I'm reading. What, what, What changes a story like that today from being something that you would would sit here in Johannesburg and write and, and report on from afar into something you, you'd actually get on a plane and go and cover for real? What, what, what makes that trigger into a story which is worth spending the time and money on to cover? Uh, a couple of years ago, there was a bomb blast. 500 people died. And I know it took a while for our colleagues in Nairobi to get in, to get permission to get in. Um, so there are issues like logistics, there are issues like security, is it safe to go in, to rush in, and then there are the basic issues of a very busy news desk back in the UK saying, well, hang on, there's Syria, there's Parliament, there's Brexit, there's Trump, lots of dead, but does this bomb blast in uh, in, uh, in and of itself somehow stand out? You know, you can't always determine how important a story is by the number of dead, although obviously that's a key part of it. Um, Is it something new? Is it a different group? Have particular groups of people been killed or been hurt? 
you know, if it's if it was a school or something, or the shopping mall, um, in Nairobi. or a shopping mall in Nairobi, and of course the usual are Westerners or British people involved, something that takes it away from just being a Somali story, to something that possibly people in Britain might feel more drawn to. What are the main challenges of covering Africa as a as a news story? It's it's a huge continent, and can one actually actually cover something that big? Well, the great thing about covering Africa is that often, you know, if you're doing your job right, I think, you you should be the only person there. It, by that, I guess I mean, if you cover Washington, D.C. and American politics, you all attend the same press conferences, you all follow the same news events, and as journalists, you're basically competing for, you know, who who does better with the same material. Whereas, to some extent, still in Africa... Because it's so big, because I have to be careful here, but it's not somewhere that people are automatically interested in everything all the time. So you get to pick and choose a bit about what you think matters. And so you get to go to places and you get to tell the stories that you think are important um, and hopefully ones that will kind of be original and different and you're not kind of slaving sort of working for that mill that you know i mean recently i believe you've just come back from zambia when you've looked at climate change in 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 africa at the moment What, what, what prompted that story so every year the today program on radio 4 has a series of guest editors uh to they basically guide the content for that morning between christmas and new year when normally it's quiet anyway um and so it's a way of filling space but it's also a nice idea they get sometimes controversial different people in to just give a little bit of a different perspective so yeah Greta Thunberg um, she is editing on I think next Monday and uh, unfortunately she didn't give me a call but her people uh, I I imagine uh, she does have people I understand (laughs) uh, talked to the Today program discussed and and that she wanted something she's got various pieces she's commissioned about the sort of about I think there's a group who've gone to the Antarctic there's a look at GM crops and about the agribusiness in Europe and then she wanted something that was very much just fundamentally about what is it like to be on the cutting edge of climate change and we were looking at various places Zimbabwe Mozambique and we settled on Zambia we settled on rural Zambia which is having a terrible drought at the moment um, but it's a drought that it, it seems, certainly the, 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 the sort of the experts seem to think is very much linked to climate change. And so we wanted to go way off the beaten track and just talk to people who weren't set up for us by NGOs or people trying to say, look, this is how we're already trying to help people tackle climate change. Um, these are the sort of new crops you can grow. We just wanted to find a, a really remote village farming community and go... How do you how are you getting by and and just spend a day or two with them? Um, let's go back in in time a little bit and, and talk about yourself. How, how did you get into journalism? How, how, what was your pathway into becoming a, a correspondent? Um, in retrospect, it all looks terribly sensible and planned. Um, but as it was happening, it was all a bit of an accident. Um, I, it felt like an accident. I, I studied English literature at university. Um, I left thinking I don't know what I want to do, but maybe journalism. I went to City University, the broadcast journalism course, which was sort of okay in those days. Um, this was late 80s. Um, 
It wasn't brilliant, I thought, and very quickly I found that I and other people were getting sort of poached off the course by uh, radio stations who wanted freelancers working. So I got a job with NBC Radio. Which I think where American. I first met you. Actually, yeah, in, uh, yes. Bedford Avenue in London in 1988, I think it was. Exactly. So I started working there. I carried on the course. Um, and then I finished the course and thought, still, I'm not sure what to do. I applied for some trainee jobs, the usual ITV, BBC, didn't get anywhere. And then at some point, I'd been... I had friends from university who'd got involved in Russia, learning Russian. One of them was still out there. She'd begun working for the BBC a bit. And at some point, I just decided, well, rather than taking another year off and, you know, travelling the world or whatever, let me persuade, let me try and get NBC to write me a letter to get accreditation and a visa to go to Moscow. And this was in 91, and the Soviet Union was falling apart and in fact as my visa application was in the Soviet embassy there was the coup and I thought oh god I'm never going to get there but the coup ended and very soon after that I turned up in Moscow and there were no freelancers. Um, I didn't speak Russian, I didn't have any strings really, uh, any freelance gigs lined up but there were just lots and lots of opportunities there and so I started working for the for The Guardian, for IRN Radio, uh, Christian Science Monitor, all these little Deutsche Welle, Pacifica. And I started sort of pulling together a, a bit of a, uh, of a kind of portfolio that could keep me working. On, on that, do you think, and there's probably no right or wrong answer to this, but if you wanted to get into working as a foreign correspondent, is it best to start at home in the UK and work your way th up through the ranks, starting at the bottom rung of a of the Guardian or the BBC or somewhere like that or, or IRN or or go abroad, take your chance to go to a country and actually try and make it out there? It's a tricky one and I, a lot of people have emailed me over the years asking how, how do you get in. Um, I mean in some ways things are different now um, in that the entry level to be a foreign correspondent in some ways is much easier because you have the internet so you can turn up in a country and you immediately have access to information which normally would require a lot more sort of investment and time to set up the, the equipment these days is much quicker you can file um, but as everyone will know you know that it's harder to make a living because people aren't paying for freelancers people don't pay retainers anymore they say well why can't I just get it for free off the internet so I mean the, I was lucky I was an expat kid so I'd grown up with you know living away from home boarding school and things and I guess that gave me a bit of an independence a feeling that well I'm just going to try my luck um, the great thing about Russia in those days which I think made a huge difference and is probably still a factor for people thinking about trying to make a go of it abroad is that it was dirt cheap you know in the early 90s in Russia you could live for five dollars a week like a king mm. so um, it was very easy to make it viable financially, and I don't think that's always the case. So I think you have to pick your place, your country, very carefully if you want to go somewhere and see who's doing what. But then the great thing is that as soon as you start filing, you are as good as the last piece you filed, and if people like what you've got and if you can get things published, then suddenly, rather than a degree or anything else, you have the, the, the really important stuff that editors care about which is here's my here are the pieces i've written what did it actually touch on that the student 
portfolio, how, imp- how important do you think it is to have a body of work on the go in order to get the jobs that you want? I'm, I'm not in the hiring business. Mm. I, I've managed to stay out <laughs> of that side of journalism very selfishly. I've just got on with it. Um, but I can imagine that it's crucial because, because, I mean, that is one of the great simple joys of journalism is that you really are judged by your material and not by where you went to school, um, your accent, your background. You are judged by what stories you've got. That's the only currency. And, I, you know, I, we have fixers and producers and freelancers and interns in our office and here and elsewhere. And it's still, it's the only thing that really matters when it boils down to it is it, who is bringing me good ideas. And if you can show that you have got and it doesn't matter if it's in Falmouth or in the Soviet Union or wherever, if you've got, if you can show that you instinctively or you can learn to have a good understanding of what might appeal and what could make a good story, then, you know, that's the only thing that really will count, I think. Another question which probably has no real right or wrong answer to it, but what do you think does make a good story? What, what do you think the essence of, of a good story is? It's <laughs> such an easy question. Um, I think, I mean, it depends to some extent on the medium. You know, good newspaper stories and good TV stories can be very, very different, um, which is one of the nice things about working for something like the BBC where you get to sure. see stories and go, well, this is going to make great radio, but frankly, I'm not so sure. Like Zambia, in fact. You know, last week we were in Zambia, we were in the middle of nowhere, really great radio, not that many people speaking English, but really interesting stuff. But what we weren't doing was doing the Victoria Falls running dry story, which is great TV. We were just in this very quiet, very small village doing the sort of piece that, you know, it's not going to get on the 10 o'clock news, probably, because it's it, it lacks drama, it lacks visual kind of shock which you know you you kind of often need so there is that element i think there are things like counterintuitive stories people like editors like and i think audiences like to be surprised and they like their preconceptions particularly on foreign news so you know in africa that's often finding a twist on the bad news or finding something positive or strange or something that we can learn from what people who you might not think we'd learn from um What can you do, do you think? The, the, the perception of Africa is that it is bad news in many ways, I think. Historically, the reporting on Africa has tended towards the bad rather than the good news. Is that something that you actively try and counter, or do you let the news happen as it happens? It's a mixture. It's a really tricky one, and the BBC agonises about this. And there's a bit of me that pushes back quite hard these days against people who seem to want journalism about Africa to be more more like the kind of brochure for, for a continent, trying to sell what's going well. And I think as foreign correspondents, if you're here for five years or three years, I think it's, you, you know, you should represent to some extent everything that's going on in that country. You should be able to leave and go, well, look, I think I captured the complexities of what's going on in that continent or that region. You know, if, if all you've done are wildlife stories or all you've done are wars, 
then clearly that's not... You, I think you haven't done your job. But at the same time, if you've ever covered a war, been in a war situation, you know that there is nothing more important in the world than a war. Everything else is just business as usual and variations on that. So, and there, there have been a lot of wars going on here. Speaking of which, let me just take this call. It's been the news desk. Hello. No. Thank you. Well, I think that, that phone call from the desk in London means we do actually have to release you back to your day job to do some more reporting on this no. one scenario. But just, I wanted to finish up by asking about um, what you think the future of journalism should be. Well, what kind of things do you think people coming out of universities now with a journalism degree, what kind of things do you think they should be striving to do to achieve to be? Oh, that's another tough one. Another tough one, yeah. What do you think our industry needs from its new generation? Maybe it's the same skills as before. I think there is a danger of throwing things out. And, and that maybe that's the voice of a 50-something-year-old um, who sees this industry changing dramatic ways, but who still sees. And I think, you know, it's been a period of flux in the media and journalism for, for you know, a good few years, social media and so on. And yet... You st the evidence still is that people turn to The Guardian, to The New York Times, to BBC, to trusted organisations, you know, for, for when, when things are bad and when they want you know, solid, reliable news. And I don't think that will ever change. Um, I think it will be challenged and there will be new ways of doing it. So I would say that, you know, the basics are still so important and we see... I mean, I hate this term fake news and the way it's been sort of brought in, you know, it's been legitimised because it's just a, it should be lies and propaganda and the truth and news. Um, so I think there's still that sort of fundamental, the, 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 you know, the trade of journalism hasn't changed and won't change. And in, in, sense, in a sense, more than ever now, you need to, you know, not be casual and not be overconfident in you know in what you put out you need to be very careful and very robust talking robustness i better you get back to your robust day job and uh thank you very much for chatting to fun with journalism yeah very very welcome <laughs>